by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is your resource for all things healthcare business and policy. Your hosts today are Dan Arteaga and Lauren Tronick. Today's episode is about how race affects the experience of medical students and how student advocates are reshaping the way race is taught in med school. Joining Dan and Lauren is Betiel Asmarum, a fourth-year medical student at UC San Diego. She's a Herbert W. Nickens Scholar, a member of the Prime Health Equity Program, and she's receiving her MPH from UC Berkeley. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We have with us one of my fellow classmates, Betial Asmaram. Betial, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate having the invitation to be on the show with you all. Betiel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I think you're the first medical student that we've had on the podcast. That's true. Yeah, so welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, from Oakland, born and raised. I like to think of myself as someone who's had multiple almost careers. So I majored in English at Berkeley, thought I was going to be a writer, thought I was going to be the next Toni Morrison, um, thought I was almost going to get a PhD in education, worked for a few years as a consultant and sort of landed on medicine as really the perfect way to help my community and help address the impacts of racism on society. And I guess more granular, something that's close to all of us, its impact on medicine and and patients and community health. Well, fantastic. I think that the next thing that we wanted to address doesn't make sense unless we talk a little bit about who we are and what our background is. And that's difficult to sometimes portray over the medium of podcasts. So I will kind of openly say, I guess, on the first time on the podcast that I am a light-skinned Latino male. Uh, Lauren? I am a white Jewish woman from Los Angeles. And Betiel? And I am a black person from Oakland, California. Awesome. Okay. So now that we've all put that out there, obviously right now the country is reckoning with race and how it's shaped our history and what it means to us individually and as a people. Betiel, you're the focus of today's interview. How do you think that your race has affected your experience as a medical student? I think the framework that we have to walk into this with is that as a Black medical student, physician, resident, a Black person in any higher education, you've heard numerous times throughout your educational career that you know, you're not going to be able to do it, that you're not going to work hard enough to achieve this goal, or that if you did make it, you only made it because you were Black and they, they just wanted to fill a quota. So I think that's the framework that many of us enter the space of academia with. And then you have all the tangible barriers keeping you out of these spaces of higher education, like the crazy cost to take standardized tests or apply to med school. And then a lot of times, like for me, especially not having a role model to achieve this goal. So, you know, you're you're trying to mold your future without a blueprint. You're foraging new ground and there isn't really anyone to help you with that process. Um, And, you know, as Black people, we've always been creators. We've always made a way out of no way. We're resilient. But unfortunately, then the narrative becomes, well, that Black student made it, so why can't all Black students make it? And it just completely misses the point of the structural barriers that are in place to making it to higher education, let alone medical school. And how does that manifest in medical school? I always tell pre-meds it's hard to be a medical student. It's really hard, but it's even harder when you're a Black medical student. Um, It's hard sitting in classes day in and day out where race is being taught as a risk factor. For me, at least, and, you know, we have a group chat of 
black medical students, we always start when we see these things on PowerPoint slides of race being the risk factor, not racism. And it's painful. You're literally seeing your people dying on a PowerPoint slide and nobody is willing to explain to you why. It becomes then on the onus of that population or something's inherently wrong with those people. And those are your family members. You know these people. So that hurts. My first year was really hard. We walked into a white coat ceremony where a racist statement was made uh, to all of our family and friends. And all the black students were like, what the heck just happened? This is our introduction to medical school. We had a first lecturer, a white woman who kept saying the N word as she was like reading parts of her book, which it was, you know, just completely inappropriate and so jarring to us as med students. Like here's the space you're entering. It's hard and it's heavy and you know, I can go on and on about different interactions right. I've had with people, but all that to say is it's it's isolating. And I think now we're entering a new realm where anti-racism is cool and it's like the hot thing to sort of talk about. But it was a very isolating experience. Thank you for sharing all that with us. And I think that saying that the way that medical school has been presenting this information is that race, not racism, is a risk factor. I think that's a very important consolidation of, of the issue. Clearly, we have so much work to do so that future Black med students can have a much better and less traumatic experience on a daily basis. What is the change that you want to see and how are you trying to achieve it? You know, for me, the big overarching goal, what I would love to see is a fundamental culture shift. Um, a culture shift where we're no longer content with just reforming things um, or or incremental change, but that we get to the point where transformational change isn't radical anymore, um, where we're no longer practicing a business model of medicine, but rather a justice and equity centered model of medicine. I would love to get to the point where we are no longer training physicians to be racist by teaching them race-based medicine in medical school, like we just talked about because it's bad science and it's irresponsible science. And I really think it's dangerous for me, the way that I'm implementing it or, you know, the early steps that I think we all need to take is just one naming racism anytime you see it. So I think a lot of times we use terms like discrimination or implicit bias, and we try to center the comfort of white folks when we're discussing this. And I think that is something that we all have to get comfortable just naming because you can't fix something unless you identify that it's there and that it's an issue. Right. Um, You know, we're working on reforming our medical school curriculum so that we are teaching that racism is the risk factor. But I hope that it's not a piecemeal effort. And I hope that it's something that's standardized across the nation, honestly, that it's not just a one institution at a time, because every person in medical school deserves to learn accurate, good science, good medicine. And, you know, also by supporting policies that promote equity between races. That is the essence of anti-racism. You have to promote policies that promote equity between races so that includes things like ACA5 that's happening in California, bringing back affirmative action in the state. That is really important to me. And, you know, I see my role as someone at my medical school, as someone who's really holding our leadership accountable to center conversations around anti-racism, to promote the redistribution of funds so that we're funding diversity initiatives in a meaningful way, um, and that we're pushing our institution to really use its power to support um, you know, these anti-racist policies that are, that are coming up right now. What do those conversations, those pushes, the fact that you're holding the administration accountable, 
I'm really curious about what that kind of concretely looks like, because when we say that we want med school to be more justice and equity-centered and less business-centered, that sounds ideal and it makes sense. But the nitty-gritty of how do we actually get there and how do we actually hold the administration accountable or make curricular changes, when you say that you're holding them accountable and having those conversations, what does that actually look like? Yeah, I think that's a a really good question and something that we're getting better at now. And just as some context, ever since I was a first year medical student, we've been asking for some of these things like curricular reform, or for example, you know, expanding our presence into areas of San Diego that are essentially healthcare deserts where there are no hospitals. And I think Mm -hmm. what happens as medical students is that a lot of the time they give us a little bit. So they say, here's like, a little bit of money for you all to start looking at this curricular thread, but it's really not enough to do the work. And then we become satisfied and then we go back to our studies. So this time around, what it looks like is us being very militant and strategic about the way that we're communicating with our administration and also identifying who has the money. So I think before we were sort of stuck in the medical school realm. And this time around, when we sent our demands out and our demands are essentially focusing on, you know, redistributing funds to fund all of the anti-racism racism initiatives, you know, mandating that they really explore their relationship with the police department um, and support the abolishment of the police and other things like that. This time we went up to the CEO of UC San Diego Health because as a medical school, what we learned was for a long time, I thought that it was my tuition that was funding the medical school, but it's not. It's actually proceeds from the hospital Um, that are funding the medical school and a lot of our initiatives. So we went straight to the CEO of UC San Diego Health. We went straight to the chancellor of all of UC San Diego um, and, of course, kept the med school in the loop and CC'd them. But this time, you know, we went to the people who are holding the money and who could make real financial decisions for us. And we also had very clear timeframes for them. So we sent out a list of demands on June 5th, and we told them we expect to hear back from you all by June 15th. And the day we sent out the demands, they were having meetings that very evening. The Tuesday after that, they were having meetings in the morning and in the evening. So I think by going to the right people, to the people who can really, who have the power to make these decisions, that helped and that they were very much alert on it. Um, And we've also told them that we expect to meet with you twice a month until everything is implemented and until we assess everything. Um, I think the other thing that helped us too is that we're working with community physicians, you know, We've talked to some of our county supervisors about the work that we're doing. We are really working with other medical students across the UC system. So it's not just a few of us at UCSD who are putting the pressure on. It's, it's really, it's a bigger initiative. And I think that has helped us, that helps us keep them accountable. But, you know, we're also just, we're staying on track this time. We're not going to let them get away from deadlines and we're not going to accept anything less than what we've asked for. Well, Betiel, you've taken on a big problem with a ton of ambition, and clearly an enormous attention to detail. You mentioned that you had put together a list of demands for the people who make the decisions that can facilitate the change that you hope to see. Can you talk us through what some of those demands are and why they ended up on this list? So the main crux of our demands is anti-racism training for all levels of leadership. So starting you know, from the C-suite down, And it's not just a one-time training. It's something that would happen several times over the course of the year. And we recommended that you can give CME credits for it, et cetera. But I think the most important thing that we advocated for in our demands is that it not be an internal training because we've seen implicit bias training. We've seen 
that it doesn't really help, that it hasn't made a difference for our institution. And so we gave them recommendations. We're like, here are the people that we trust to give really rigorous anti-racism training that makes everyone feel uncomfortable. Nobody should leave the room feeling good about themselves after they go through the training. I, I strongly believe that if it's a good training. So that's a, a big part of it. And we've also asked for them to compensate the time of our like department chairs, uh, residency directors, all these people to actually do this training and make it so that it's as easy as possible for them to have it. And that's where a lot of the money comes from, because you're going to have to compensate the time of these individuals who need to take time away several times a year to do this training. Similarly, we're also asking for that anti-racism training for incoming medical students, for all medical students. So through your first year to your fourth year, you should be getting some level of this training. Another part of our ask is really a rehaul of the curriculum, which They've started giving us, but we've asked them to fully fund that so that we have enough faculty members doing the work. Right now, we have one person who's hired at point two FTE, so basically one day a week to rehaul a medical school curriculum. That's ridiculous. So really having them put their money um, where their mouth is. I think the best part of the conversation was, well, if you want to do this, why don't you do it as like research projects, you know, as medical students to fix the curriculum? And that's a big problem, too, because you're asking for black students to do unpaid labor to make your institution look better. And then you're going to take the credit for it. And that's time away from things that we could be doing, like research to help with our resumes and applying to residency. Time that takes away from studying, uh, time that we could be on the wards doing other work. So that was really important for me to make sure that they were paying professionals who have the expertise to do this work and not leaving it to the back of medical students. Because if you're forcing your medical students to do unpaid labor, then that's not anti-racism. You know, that's perpetuating it because you're adding a burden onto your black medical students. Yeah. Amen. It's not even unpaid labor. You're paying to do the labor. <laughs> that's true. We're paying tuition to be there. <laughs> but yeah, so this time we're asking for fully funded. You know, part of the reason that we've done this podcast is because um, we, like you, hope to see major changes in the way that healthcare is delivered in this country, and we see we see the people in training as as the kind of the future of care delivery in this country. But this is a field that is just rooted in tradition, and it's notoriously difficult to make change. You've taken a peek behind the curtain. Do you have hope that change is possible? Do you have hope that the next 10 years will result in the kind of changes that you want to see in, in medicine? So I'm very hopeful. And I think it's important that we stay hopeful regardless of the situation because I love Brian Stevenson and he says hopelessness is the enemy of justice. So we have to stay hopeful. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen and what I always see is that uh, it's hard when you share your story with people in power, when you share the heavy burden that's put on you as a black medical student, and I think we've made our case very well. I'll say it's unfortunate that we have to make the case and make people aware of it, but we, I think we've made it very well. And I think people respond to that. I'll say our CEO, who's also from Oakland, has responded very favorably. She's been acting with a sense of urgency and really getting her team together to push this work forward. You know, we've seen some financial commitment at this point. It's still really early. And what I tell everyone that I work with is that we can't, we can't get overzealous. We can't get, we can't let little things that they give us just make us content. So while I'm hopeful, I'm not going to believe anything until I actually see it. Um, and until we've had the time to actually assess the interventions. 
And like I mentioned before, I think transformative change is really hard for people who work in these sort of fields. And, you know, structural racism has been embedded in the fabric of our nation. So to envision a world without it is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. But I'm committed to continuing to have these conversations, to continuing to center the conversation around how we become an anti-racist institution. I think now is really the time where we can't back down. And even when I talk to Black medical students who are coming up below me, it breaks my heart to see the struggles that they're having. And I really, I want to leave this school knowing that we did everything we can to make it so that every Black medical student feels supported, feels like they belong in this space. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that our institution makes it there. And it shouldn't be all falling on your shoulders in the way that it is. And I hope that it doesn't continue to fall on your shoulders. And I hope that by listening to your feedback, people that are paid take the initiative to make these changes. Um, But thank you so much for doing this work and, and sharing it with us. What is your advice for fellow trainees uh, who want to be advocates for change? I would say the first thing is really identify what the problem is that you want to solve. I can just give a small example. For example, we talk a lot about recruitment and retention when we talk about Black medical students. So how do we recruit more students? And I always ask people like, well, look at how many people are getting secondary applications. Who's getting interviewed? If they're getting accepted, are they going somewhere else? So really look at the whole picture and get granular. What is the exact issue that you need to solve in a scenario like that, for example? And then I would say, make sure you have the data to support you. You know, the folks who are dealing with are very data-driven people. So whatever it may be, I, I mean, my second year of medical school, I was calling up medical schools on the East Coast. I was looking through pages of data. I was doing surveys because... I knew what the issue is, but I knew the people that who I was dealing with didn't know what it is. So I really needed Hmm. to make sure that I was using data to make a compelling story as well. And then I would say, like we discussed, know who the key stakeholders are. You got to know who you need to target. You know, we probably should have been targeting our CEO and chancellor a lot earlier, but I think it just takes time to sort of understand who really makes the decisions in scenarios like this. And I think a really important point is to know who your advocates are, you know, Reach out to the residents because residents are also dealing with a lot of things that we're dealing with. Reach out to community physicians who work with people at your institution. They have been so invaluable to us. Reach out to your local politicians to make sure that you get the support you need and just stay hungry, stay diligent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard work. It's unfortunate that it falls on our backs, but I'm going to ask our deans to pay back all my tuition. So hopefully that makes up for it. (laughs) Um, You just, you just got to stay committed and just, you know, just remember that you're not doing this for yourself, you're doing this for everyone coming up after you because you want to make this a better place. And I would just say to everyone, do not be content with anything less than transformational change. Don't be content. If they give you a little bit, it doesn't matter. You got to take everything if you really want to see a change in the way that our institutions are run. Well, Betiel, thank you for joining us. You rock. Keep doing the great work that you're doing. (laughs) You guys rock too. This is an awesome podcast. Thank you so much, Betiel. And for our listeners, if you are interested in reading the full list of demands, which I highly recommend, they are up on our website at wellroundedmed.com. Lauren, is that is that a wrap? I think that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>